Now, we just move right over to Second Kings because it picks up the story at this point. And I begin reading now, Second Kings chapter 1, verse 1. Then Moab rebelled against Israel after the death of Ahab. And Ahaziah fell down through a lattice in his upper chamber that was in Samaria and was sick. And he sent messengers and said unto them, Go, inquire of Baal-zebub, the god of Ekron, whether I shall recover of this disease. Now, I don't know why he fell down through the lattice. I would be inclined to say that he got drunk and this is what happened. But if I said that, it would be because I'm gossiping, because I don't know whether it's true or not. But he fell down for some reason. And now, instead of going to the God of Israel, he goes yonder to Baal-zebub, the worship of Baal, the God of Ekron. And the angel of the Lord said to Elijah the Tishbite, Arise, go up and meet the messengers of the king of Samaria, and say unto them, Is it not because there's not a God in Israel that you go to inquire of Baal-zebub, the God of Ekron? And this man Elijah, and this was one of his last missions, by the way, he went up and he met the messengers and he gave them the message. And they went back and reported, by the way, to the king. And he said unto them, What manner of man was he which came to meet you and told you these things? They answered him, He was a hairy man, girt with a girdle of leather about his loins. He said, It's Elijah the Tishbite. Then the king sent unto him a captain of fifty with his fifty, and he went up to him, and behold, he sat on the top of a hill, and he spake unto him, Thou man of God, the king hath said, Come down. And Elijah answered and said to the captain of fifty, If I be a man of God, then let fire come down from heaven and consume thee and thy fifty. There came fire from heaven and consumed him and his fifty. My friend, may I say that Elijah is quite a man, is he not? And as I said before, he just didn't seem to fit in with the compromise of the court of Ahab and Jezebel. We hear so much today about that we must learn to communicate and that we must get along with everybody. Well, may I say to you, that is not God's method. And the compromise of the church today and the compromise of the leaders has not led to the world listening to the church. The fact of the matter is, right now, the world's not listening at all. They pass the church by, and they're not listening. Why? Because they'll not listen until the church declares the Word of God. And I believe that if we do that today, and the church could declare the Word of God, that there would be communication. Elijah managed to get through. He was heard. People listened to him. And he's pretty rough type individual. And the king sent another captain. And, of course, the same thing happened to him. And this is the judgment now that he pronounces upon this man Ahaziah. Verse 16, he said unto him, Thus saith the Lord, For as much as thou hast sent messengers to inquire of Baal-zebub, the god of Ekron, is it not because there's no God in Israel to inquire of his word? Therefore thou shalt not come down off that bed on which thou art gone up, but shalt surely die. So he died according to the word of the Lord, which Elijah had spoken. And Jehoram reigned in his stead 
in the second year of Jehoram, the son of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, because he had no son. And we find here that this ends the line of this man, Rahab. Now the rest of the acts of Ahaziah, which he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Israel? And we'll have more to say when we get over to First and Second Chronicles. Now we come in chapter 2 to the conclusion of the life of this man, Elijah. And we have here the translation of Elijah as he went up in the chariot of fire and of Elisha, who now comes on the scene. I have a little book that we are sending out now to those who want to have a part in our ministry. Our notes and outlines, you send for them, we send them to you. You put on our mailing list and you receive them whether you ever send in anything or not. But we do have to ask that for the books that you send in an offering for the broadcast. Now, this little book, two episodes from the life of Elisha. I think that Elisha, like Micaiah, that unknown prophet, unknown in the sense we know so little about him, that is the one who pronounced the death that would come upon Ahab, and he joined with Elijah in that. And so he stood for God. But he's overshadowed by Elijah. And also, we find Elisha is overshadowed by Elijah, but he ought not to be. Actually, Elisha performed more miracles than Elijah did. And I'm going to have a great deal to say about that when we get into Second Kings, which we'll be doing even more so next time. This man is altogether different than Elijah. In fact, they are the opposite in their nature. Elijah was the man for the public, to stand before the public. Elisha was one who ministered personally to individuals, and his ministry was largely in that area. And therefore, it was not quite as exciting and dramatic as that of Elijah. But I feel like that we should call a great deal of attention to him, which, by the way, we're going to do. And we begin reading here in chapter 2 now at verse 1. It came to pass when the Lord would take up Elijah into heaven by a whirlwind that Elijah went with Elisha from Gilgal. And Elijah said unto Elisha, Tarry here, I pray thee, for the Lord hath sent me to Bethel. And Elisha said unto him, As the Lord liveth, and as thy soul liveth, I'll not leave thee. So they went down to Bethel. And the sons of the prophets that were at Bethel came forth to Elisha and said unto him, Knowest thou that the Lord will take away thy master from thy head today? And he said, Yea, I know it. Hold ye your peace. He said to them, Shut up. I don't want to hear you. I already know it. And Elijah said unto him, Elisha, tarry here, I pray thee, for the Lord hath sent me to Jericho. And he said, As the Lord liveth, As thy soul liveth, I'll not leave thee. So they came to Jericho. Elijah is trying to get Elisha to stay back. Elisha said, no, I know that you're to leave us today. And I want to be present when that takes place. And again, verse 5, the sons of the prophets that were at Jericho came to Elisha and said unto him, Knowest thou that the Lord will take away 
thy master from thy head today? And he answered, Yea, I know it. Hold your peace. You see, the very interesting thing is that people today are turning to all types of outside information. This is the day when the fortune teller and those who deal with the zodiac and those today that are dealing with all kinds of the occult, they turned everywhere but to God. And you won't get any information from any of these areas that you couldn't get from God. Even the sons of the prophets, they were false prophets up in Samaria. They had the information Elijah was to leave, but after all, Elisha already knew it. You won't get anything new, and you're never getting good news in that direction. And we're told that what happened was this, and Elijah took his mantle, wrapped it together, and smote the waters. Now, they come down to the Jordan, and probably I should drop back and read verse 6. And Elijah said unto him, Tarry, I pray thee here, for the Lord hath sent me to Jordan. And he said, As the Lord liveth, thy soul liveth, I'll not leave thee. They two went on. And Elijah took his mantle, wrapped it together, smote the waters, and they were divided hither and thither, so that they two went over on dry ground. It came to pass when they were gone over that Elijah said unto Elisha, Ask what I shall do for thee before I be taken away from thee. And Elisha said, I pray thee, let a double portion of thy spirit be upon me. Now, don't miss that. Elisha actually is a greater prophet than Elijah. He had a double portion of the Spirit of God upon him. Now, he says, thou hast asked a hard thing. Nevertheless, if thou see me when I'm taken from thee, it shall be so unto thee. But if not, it shall not be so. Came to pass, as they still went on and talked, that, behold, there appeared a chariot of fire and horses of fire, and parted them both asunder. And Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. And Elisha saw it, and he cried, My father, my father, the chariot of Israel, and the horsemen thereof. And he saw him no more. He took hold of his own clothes, rent them in two pieces. He took up also the mantle of Elijah that fell from him and went back and stood by the bank of Jordan. He took the mantle of Elijah that fell from him. He smote the waters and said, Where is the Lord God of Elijah? And when he also had smitten the waters, they parted hither and thither, and Elisha went over. Now you see, this man, Elisha, is taking the place of Elijah, and he demonstrates his faith. Elijah's not essential. And he takes that robe, he smites the waters, just as Elijah had done. The power's not in Elijah, the power's in God. And Elisha knew that. And now he takes that mantle, he smites the waters, just as Elijah had done. And what happens? Well, this man has the faith that Elijah had. And it's the Lord God of Elijah. He asked that question, where is the Lord God of Elijah? That's the important thing. Instead of looking to men or to methods or to some nostrum that's offered today or to look into some woman, for that matter, a great many people turn in that direction, why not look to the Lord God of Israel, the living God, the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, 
Why not look to the Savior today? That is the important thing. Now, he took the mantle of Elijah that fell from him, and he smote the waters and went on. Now, when the sons of the prophets, which were to view at Jericho, saw him, they said, The Spirit of Elijah doth rest on Elisha. And they came to meet him, and bowed themselves to the ground before him. They said unto him, Behold now, there be with thy servant fifty strong men. Let them go, we pray thee, and seek thy master. Let's peradventure the Spirit of the Lord have taken them up and cast them upon some high mountain or some valley. And he said, Ye shall not sin. He's gone. You don't have to go over there and investigate. He's not over there. He's been taken. And when they urged him till he was ashamed, he said, Sin. Finally said, All right, if you want to go, go ahead. They sent. Therefore, fifty men they sought three days, but found him not. And when they came again to him, for he tarried at Jericho, he said unto them, Did I not say unto you, Go not? I told you not to go. You were wasting your time. You won't find him over there. Now, here is an incident that takes place. We're told a man of the city said unto Elisha, Behold, I pray thee, the situation of this city is pleasant, as my Lord seeth, but the water is not, the ground barren. He said, Bring me a new cruise and put salt therein. They brought it. Now, this is where Elisha made the waters sweet. We're told, verse 22, So the waters were healed unto this day, according to the saying of Elisha, which he spake. And you can see those waters there in that valley, right at Jericho, by the way. They are there today. I did not drink of them. Be honest with you, I'm a little afraid to drink water that's out in the open in that land. It's apt to be contaminated. But I'm told by those that were brave enough to drink it that it is very sweet water, very delicious water to drink, by the way. We come to an incident in the life of this man Elisha that probably has been criticized as much as anything that is in the Scripture. Many years ago, a little booklet was handed to me, and the title of it was A Thousand Errors in the Bible. I went through that little book. May I say that I didn't find one error, and this, by the way, is one that is pointed out with glee by the enemies of the Word of God. Did you know that the critic today finds great pride and delight in pointing out the slaying of these poor little children by Elisha and that it was such a terrible thing? Now, I think probably I should read this incident, and then we'll look at it for just a moment. Verse 23, And he went up, from thence unto Bethel. Now, this was immediately after the translation of Elijah. Elisha now is returning from that event. You'll recall that some of the theological students in that day, they doubted that he had really gone up. They thought that the Lord had really taken him over there in the mountain somewhere and had slain him, thrown him upon a rock in some way. And what a peculiar view they had of God. And now Elisha is on the way back, and the word has gone before about him. 
And we're told now, and again let me begin reading it, verse 23. And he went up from thence unto Bethel, and as he was going up by the way, there came forth little children out of the city, and mocked him, and said unto him, Go up, thou bald head, go up, thou bald head. And he turned back and looked on them, and cursed them in the name of the Lord. And there came forth two she-bears out of the wood, and tare forty, and two children of them. And he went from thence to Mount Carmel, and from thence he returned to Samaria. Now, not only has the critic come to this passage of Scripture, but many sincere believers today are stumped by this, because the scorner points this out and says, you don't mean to tell me that God would destroy little children like that. And it would seem to contradict other portions of Scripture. Now, may I say this to you, that first of all, we need to recognize that the human mind, as we come into the world with it, is more or less neutral. It is neutral on practically every subject except one. And there is an innate streak of rebellion against God. There is an inborn bias against God. And man, first of all, is skeptical of the Bible. Believe anybody, anything except God. And if you don't believe it, notice how they fall for the politicians. And you let a man put on a white coat on TV and put on some nose glasses, pince-nez, I think they call them, glasses, and then he makes some statement about some mouthwash or deodorant or toothpaste, and everybody runs and buys it because they think that's scientific because the man's got on a white coat. My friend, that reveals the nature of man. Now, if a man's an honest doubter, he's going to beat his music out. And there's an answer to all the problems and questions that concern the Word of God. Now, that doesn't mean I can answer all of them, because I cannot. But here is one that I can answer. And I want to spend just a little time with this today. Now, Elijah was succeeded, as we've seen, by Elisha. And in many respects... He was greater than Elijah. Now, I say that recognizing that that will be a surprise to many because we always think of Elijah as being the greatest of the prophets, and he's the one that is to return. Well, if you want to measure them by miracles, Elisha performed more miracles than Elijah did. He was a gentleman in contrast to Elijah. He was a young man at the beginning, and he was on this occasion returning from beyond Jordan where Elijah had been caught up in a chariot of fire. And that event had spread like wildfire over the entire countryside. And Elisha returned to Bethel. And I think that the news media had carried it in that day. I guess the Bethel bugle had a headline about Elijah going up in a chariot of fire, at least they would not confirm it. they just say that there were those who had seen that. Well, Bethel means the house of God. 
It was first mentioned by Abraham, then by Jacob. And then it did not continue, though, to live up to its name. At the time of the division of the kingdom, Jeroboam, you'll recall, placed one of the golden calves here. And it was a school for the false prophets. And it, of course, was an imitation of the school of the prophets down in Judah. Now, in this atmosphere, the children of Bethel were educated. They were godless, no training, been no discipline in the home. And I think Bethel, the house of God, didn't live up to its name. It's rather like Los Angeles. Los Angeles means the city of angels. And we have everything here except those, by the way. Now will you notice verse 23 again? Because somebody's saying, well, wait a minute. You're not answering the question. I'm getting ready to, friends. Now let me read verse 23. And he went up from thence unto Bethel. And as he was going up by the way, there came forth little children out of the city. Now the accepted opinion is that these were precious little children. All of us are moved by children. And may I say to you, these little ones get to you. And when you read this, why, it moves you. Now, if you think these are little juniors or primaries or even junior highs, then I'll have to admit that Elisha was rather cruel because it would be contrary to the rest of Scripture the Lord Jesus said, Suffer the little children to come unto me and forbid them not, for of such is the kingdom of heaven. And you will find out God's tender care of the little ones. You remember Kadesh Barnea, children of Israel refused to go into the land, and they gave us an excuse our little ones would be in danger. But God said to them, You should have gone in. You should have believed me. You thought I wouldn't take care of the little ones? He says, you're not going in, but your little ones, who you thought were in danger, they're going in and inherit the land. Now, may I say that the word that is used here is a very interesting word for little children. And very frankly, it should not be translated by that at all. You will find it used in other places in Scripture, and it doesn't refer to little children as we think of them at all. For instance, over in 1 Kings, the 12th chapter, at verse 8, you remember that when Rehoboam forsook the wisdom of the wise man, the older man, and then we are told in verse 8, but he forsook the counsel of the old man which they had given him, and he consulted with the young man. Now, it's the same word that's translated little children here. And actually, I'm sure that none of us believe that Rehoboam was consulting with little juniors. I don't think that he went to nursery school and talked it over with the little ones. There. They were young men, and the word here should be young men. They're students. Now, you will find that this is a word that is used in quite a few places in Scripture and elsewhere. It's always translated as young man, uh, never except here in this way. And the very interesting thing at the time that Samuel came and anointed the sons of Jesse, 
Why, you remember, he had grown sons. And they went by, and Samuel said to him, Are here all thy children? Well, the word children here is the same word. And these were grown men that passed by, you see. The youngest one wasn't even there, and these others were older. So what we have here are a group of young people. They were students of the false prophets. They were a gang of hippies, if you want to know the proper word for them. And we're told here that they mocked. They said this. Let me read the rest of it here. There came forth these young men, students in the school of the prophets, out of the city, and they mocked him. They ridiculed him. And they said unto him, Go up, thou bald head, go up, thou bald head. Now, what did they mean? What they said is, be translated. Do the same thing that Elijah did. What they're doing is ridiculing the truth in Scripture that God will take a people out of this world. Now, that's the thing that Peter says will appear again in the last days. And this is given to us to let us know that God intends to judge those who ridicule the second coming of Christ. Now, will you notice this? He mentions in Second Peter, the third chapter, notice this, verse 3. Knowing this first that there shall come in the last days scoffers, walking after their own lusts, and saying, Where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. What they'll be saying, and I have expected it to happen again and again. So far, it hasn't begun yet. And that's those who ridicule those who believe in the coming of Christ. And it would go something like this. Well, what's the matter? You haven't gone up yet. You're still hanging around. I thought you were going to leave us. That type of thing. Where is the sign of his coming? And that's one reason that we ought to be very careful today. The way that we preach on the second coming of Christ that we not go out on a limb, that we not become fanatics on this particular subject, but that we handle it in as careful manner as the Word of God handles it. And for that reason, may I say to you that this is just a little picture of the judgment that will come upon those who will ridicule the second coming of Christ to the earth. And what will God do with those who ridicule these? Why, it's a fearful judgment. Now, let me read what happened. He turned back and looked on them and cursed them in the name of the Lord. It's an awful thing for a preacher to deny the deity of Christ and the work that he did at his first coming. And it's a terrible thing to ridicule the second coming of Christ and to deny that. By the way, this is a very severe judgment. By the way, did you notice they called him bald head? We do know something about this man Elisha. He was not a hippie. He was bald-headed, by the way. They call him bald head, and they say to him, Go up. Why don't you take off like Elijah did? They are ridiculing this great truth. And we are told that the Word of God has a great deal about judgment in it. 
And we need, therefore, you see, to get our facts squared away. When you understand what we're talking about here, there's nothing here that's out of line with the rest of Scripture. I agree it's extreme treatment. He pronounced a curse upon them. He sounds like Elijah here, and he sounds like the Lord Jesus. He said, Woe unto you, Capernaum, though you be exalted to heaven, you're going to be cast down to hell. That's judgment, friend. And Paul could turn to the soldier that smote him and says, God shall smite thee, thou whited sepulcher. And may I say to you that this is not the revengeful anger of the prophet. Elisha's not responsible for the bears. He's not vindictive here. God is the one who sent the bears. Now, if you want to be a scoffer, you find fault with God, will you? You know, we're living in a day when we've had all of this pussyfooting in our legal system today. The lack of the enforcement of law on the part of judges is a scandal, and it is responsible for the lawlessness. It is responsible today for the shooting down of police and the fact that it's not safe to walk our streets anymore. I tell you, the minds of people in this country have been brainwashed. When are we going to wake up? And may I say to you that when you have this type of thing, there must be judgment. I personally believe that these young lawless lawbreakers today, I heard a leading attorney in this country, if I called his name, many of you'd know him. I heard him say it privately to a small group, and that's the reason I won't quote his name. He said that these young lawbreakers ought to be taken out as they did in the early days in the colonies and whip them, whip them publicly. He says if that were done, it would break up a great deal of the lawlessness. May I say to you, nobody else ridiculed Elisha around Bethel. You may be sure of that. Now, let's keep moving here. I've spent a great deal of time with this incident here. Now, that brings me, friends, to the third chapter. And we come to a section here that I must confess that to me is rather, shall I say, just a little boring. Well, let me just mention one or two things that took place in this chapter. King Ahaziah, the son of Ahab, he had no son as his successor, so that his brother Jehoram is the one who reigns after him. And we have Jehoram who comes to the throne. Now, Moab rebels against Israel, and Jehoshaphat joins forces with Jehoram, to go against Moab. And Jehoshaphat again calls for a prophet of Jehovah. And Elisha refuses at first, but he responds because of the presence of Jehoshaphat that is there. And Elisha announces that God would give them both water, which they sorely needed, and victory over Moab, which was granted. That's what we have here in chapter 3. And Ahaziah, the son of Ahab, he had no son. And so we find Jehoram. Now Jehoram, the son of Ahab, began to reign over Israel in Samaria. You see, it was actually the brother of King Ahaziah. 
And he wrought evil in the sight of the Lord, but not like his father and his mother, for he put away the image of Baal that his father had made. Nevertheless, he cleaved unto the sins of Jeroboam the son of Nebat, which made Israel to sin. He departed not therefrom. That is calf worship. And now we are told that the king of Moab came, and they tried to get Elisha to come. He wouldn't at first, and then finally he did come, and probably we ought to pick that up here. In verse 11, we are told, But Jehoshaphat said, Is there not here a prophet of the Lord, that we may inquire of the Lord by him? And one of the king of Israel's servants answered and said, Here is Elisha, the son of Shaphat, which poured water on the hands of Elijah. And Jehoshaphat said, The word of the Lord's with him. So the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat and the king of Edom went down to him. And Elisha said unto the king of Israel, What have I to do with thee? Get thee to the prophets of thy father and to the prophets of thy mother. The king of Israel said unto him, Nay, for the Lord hath called these three kings together to deliver them into the hand of Moab. Now notice, Elisha said, As the Lord of hosts liveth, before whom I stand, surely were it not that I regard the presence of Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, I'd not look toward thee nor see thee. And then Elisha gave the promise that there would be water, there would be a victory, and God gave the victory. Now we have in chapter 4 here, we have five miracles that were performed by Elisha. Now I said that this man performed more miracles actually than Elijah did, and you have five of them here. And there is a similarity between the miracles of Elisha and Elijah, that is some of them. The miracles performed by Elisha, they were more extensive and actually greater to a degree. Now first of all, there is a widow of one of the prophets. She's in dire circumstances. Her two sons are about to be sold into slavery, and Elisha multiplies the pot of oil. I tell you, they had a regular oil well going in that house. And this actually, I think, was greater than the cruise of oil that the widow had in Elijah's day. Now we have here the second one. We're told a great woman of Shunem. She entertains Elisha, and Elisha promises her that she should have a son. And one of the things that she did, and I should call attention to it, is in verse 10 of chapter 4. It says, Let us make a little chamber, I pray thee, on the wall, and let us set for him there a bed and a table and a stool and a candlestick, and it shall be when he cometh to us that he shall turn in thither. Now, she prepared a room for Elisha when he passed through that area. And since then, there have been a great many Christians, great many believers that have in their home what they call the prophet's chamber. I have been itinerating around a great deal in my ministry, and I've stayed in many prophet's chambers. And I could tell you about people all across this country today, some wonderful Christian folk that have a room where many a preacher and many a missionary has been able to go. He's felt at home. He's been entertained. And you do not know what that means in the life 
of many of God's men today. God bless those that have a prophet's chamber. What a wonderful thing that is, by the way. Now, we have another miracle here, and I think that probably that I should mention it. When the child was grown to manhood, he died. And Elisha restores him to life using the same method that Elijah did. That is, contact with a person that brought life, you see. The great principle is that it's contact with Jesus Christ. In him we have life. He is life. And we have him or we don't have him. And then we have the sons of the prophets are eating a soup in which there was a poison. And Elisha makes it harmless. And then the last one, Elisha feeds 100 men with food for one man. That is a very remarkable miracle. Now, these are given in chapter 4. And I'm going to let you read that chapter because we're going to pick up chapter 5. Now, friends, we come to one of the most interesting chapters, I think, in the life of this man, Elisha the prophet. And it reveals that he's probably as rugged as Elijah was and that he had as good a sense of humor as Elijah had. Fact of the matter is, I think that the Lord has a sense of humor and he likes to use men that have a sense of humor like Elijah and Elisha here. And you can't help but smile when you read this incident here although it deals with a man in a very desperate situation. That is, a man who is a leper. And I want to spend a little time with this because it's so important. Now, let me read verse 1 of Second Kings 5. Now, Naaman, captain of the host of the king of Syria, he was a great man with his master and honorable because by him the Lord had given deliverance unto Syria. He was also a mighty man in valor, but he was a leper. This man is before us now. There's one verse tells us, I think, all about him. His name was Naaman. He was a pagan. He was captain of the host of the king of Syria. And he was a great man with his master. And I think that we can say that he was a great man. He also was not only a great man, but he was an honorable man. Although a pagan, he is an honorable man. And then fourth thing is said of him, because by him the Lord had given deliverance unto Syria. Now, that is quite Remarkable, I'm sure that you'll agree that he is a man that the Lord had used. Now, you will find that the Lord uses men in this world that are not Christian. That may seem strange to you, but you don't have to read very far in the Word of God. You find that God used Pharaoh. God used King Nebuchadnezzar. God used Cyrus. God used Alexander the Great, and God uses this man. Now, I don't think he's quite as great a man as these we've named, but he was a great man, and God had used him. And that is a remarkable thing that can be said about him. The character of this man is quite remarkable, you see. 
And we're told also the fifth thing here, he was also a mighty man of valor. Now, this man was a Syrian, and he was a generous man, and these things that are mentioned here, they count in the high court of heaven. God doesn't despise these things, and this heathen was used of God. By him the Lord had given deliverance. Now, we find, though, that having said all these fine things about him, now we have to say this, but he was a leper. You know, there are a lot of folk in this world today that you can say some very nice things about them. They're not Christian. You can say that they're fine men, that they've done fine things. But you see, you have to conclude it by saying he's a sinner. (laughs) All have sinned. And no matter how nice these men might be, and women for that matter, they're all sinners in the sight of God. After all, the colonel's lady and Judy O'Grady, they're sisters under the skin. All are sinners. And it says, but he was a leper here. Now, lepers were not excluded from society in pagan nations. It was only in Israel. And it's quite interesting, God would give them that, because it did keep leprosy from spreading, of course. Today, they are put in a colony, as you know. And God did that way before any pagan nation even thought of it. This is something for you to think about, friends. Here is a book that tells about rules that concern lepers. And it's not until you come into what we would call a civilized day that man decided this is the thing that should be done. Now, leprosy in Scripture is a type of sin. It's incurable by human means to a certain extent. However, many were cured, and only God can cure sin. It's not incurable either, but it's difficult. Only God can cure sin. Only God can save the sinner. So here we have a man that you can say some very fine things about him. And man today has good points. Some people become a little impatient with me because I put such a tremendous emphasis on the fact that men are sinners. Now, the reason I do that is because there are so many that are humanists today and they play man up and they fail to mention man is a sinner. That is something that is not preached on too much today. So I overemphasize it, maybe. I just make up for the lack, and that's what I'm trying to do. But man has his good points. But he's fundamentally a sinner. Now, this man, Naaman, he tried to cover up his leprosy, but he couldn't cure it. A great many people today whitewash sin. What they need is to be washed white. And only Christ can do that today. Now, we have something else here that is quite interesting. We have one of those unknown characters of the Bible, unnamed, unknown, but a great person. I have always wanted to run a series of messages, not on the great man of the Bible, but a little-known, 
unknown, unnamed characters in the Bible that in heaven are great. They're big people. And we're going to find here's one of them here. Now, let me read verse 2. And the Syrians had gone out by companies and had brought away captive out of the land of Israel a little maid, and she waited on Naaman's wife. I don't know the name of this maid, but a little Hebrew girl. And she's, to me, as great as Queen Esther. She's as great as Ruth the Moabitess. She is as great as Bathsheba. She's great as Sarah and Rebecca and Rachel. No, no, I can't give you her name. This little maid, and she waited on Naaman's wife. And she said unto her mistress, Would God my Lord were with the prophet that is in Samaria, for he would recover him of his leprosy. The little maid now, you see, she's in no position to give orders. But just one day, she uttered a sigh, and she says, Oh, if my master just would go down and see the prophet down in Samaria, and he'd recover him of his leprosy. Elisha had quite a reputation, you see. And one went in and told his Lord, saying, somebody overheard it. Maybe the wife did. Thus and thus said the maid that is of the land of Israel. And the king of Syria said, go to, go, and I'll send a letter unto the king of Israel. And he departed and took with him ten talents of silver, six thousand pieces of gold, and ten changes of raiment. And he brought the letter to the king of Israel, saying, Now when this letter is come unto thee, behold, I have therewith sent Naaman my servant to thee, that thou mayest recover him of his leprosy. And it came to pass, when the king of Israel had read the letter, he ran his clothes and said, Am I God to kill and to make alive that this man doth send unto me to recover a man of leprosy? Wherefore consider, I pray you, and see how he seeketh a quarrel against me. Why, well, he said, I'm not God. I can't heal him. I always feel like that anyone that claims to have a gift of healing is almost blaspheming, friend. The king Israel said, well, I don't claim to be that. And Elisha didn't either, by the way. He was never known as that. And the Lord Jesus was never known as that, by the way. That was not the emphasis at all. But will you notice here, the king of Israel comes to the conclusion, what he's trying to do is start a quarrel with me. And he sends this man down here, and I won't be able to do a thing about it. It was so when Elisha, the man of God, had heard that the king of Israel had rent his clothes, he sent to the king, saying, Wherefore hast thou rent thy clothes? Let him come now to me, and he shall know that there's a prophet in Israel, not much of a king. But there's a prophet of God in Israel. Send him down to me. So Naaman came with his horses, with his chariot, and stood at the door of the house of Elisha. Now this man from a very great kingdom in the north, in fact a kingdom in the north that right now was bearing down upon the nation Israel and had already had victors over them, and he expected the red carpet to be rolled out for him. And what happened? Elisha sent a messenger unto him, saying, Go and wash in Jordan seven times, and thy flesh shall come again to thee, and thou shalt be clean. Now, this is the 
thing that he was to do. And my friend, may I say to you that this is something that just hurt the pride of Naaman. Elisha actually received this man rudely. In fact, he didn't receive him at all. He didn't even go to the door to meet him. Why, you'd think the prophet would come out and begin to bow and scrape to this great captain from up in Syria. He didn't even come to the door. He sent his services, go tell him down, wash in the Jordan River. And let him dip himself down that. And Elisha sent a messenger unto him, said, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and thy flesh shall come again to thee, and thou shalt be clean. And do you think now that this man Naaman is going to accept this? No, he's not. Why? Because he's a very proud man. <laughs> and he never received treatment like this before. And do you know that the Lord's not only going to heal him of leprosy, He's going to heal him of pride also. It's an interesting thing. When God saves you, he'll generally take out of your life that thing that offends. And pride just happens to be one of the things that God hates. We hear a great deal about God is love, but God also hates. And you can't love without hating. You can't love the good without hating the evil. If you love your children... You'd hate any mad dog that came in the yard to bite your little ones. You'd want to kill that mad dog. In no unmistakable language, God declares that he hates the pride of heart. Over in Proverbs 6:17, there are seven things that God hates. And you know what number one on God's hate parade is? A proud look. God says he hates that. He hates that as much as he hates murder. James in the fourth chapter, verse 6, old practical James says, God resisteth the proud, but he giveth grace unto the humble. Pride is the undoing of man, actually. It's a great sin. In Proverbs sixteen eighteen, we read, Pride goeth before destruction, and a haughty spirit before a fall. In Proverbs 11, 2, pride cometh, then cometh shame. And in Proverbs 29, 23, man's pride shall bring him low. Now, why does God hate pride? Well, the definition of pride is excessive self-esteem. It's inordinate self-esteem. It's more than a reasonable delight in one's position and achievement. Paul put it like this, man ought not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think. Pride is placing an exorbitant price on self. It's demanding more than you are worth. Have you ever heard it said, I wish I could buy that man for what he's worth and sell him for what he thinks he's worth? Pride is the difference between what you are and what you think you are. That is pride, and it was the pride of Satan. It was the sin of Satan that brought him down. God says, I'll bring you down, though you exalt yourself to heaven. And that was the sin of Edom. Man's pride runs counter to God's plan, and whenever they meet this friction and there's no compromise, it's always a head-on collision. You see, God's plan of salvation is the supreme answer to man's pride. God lays man low. 
He takes nothing from man. And Paul could say of himself when he met Jesus Christ, but what things were gained to me, those I counted lost for Christ. He gave up religion, he gave up everything, and he counted it but dung. He said, I flushed it. Christ and pride do not go together. And you can't be proud and at the same time trust Christ as your Savior. And if you trust Christ as your Savior, you've laid all your pride in the dust, my friend. Now, this story of Naaman is the finest example that we have of that. A great man, to be sure. God labels the things that mark him out as a man of great character and ability. But he was a leper. He was a sinner. And God is not only going to heal him of leprosy, he's going to heal him of his pride. And believe me, old Elisha's insulted him. Elisha wouldn't even roll out any kind of carpet for him. Elisha wouldn't even come to the door, sonny servant. Says, tell him, go on down there to the Jordan River and dip in seven times. Now, will you notice this man? Naaman was wroth. That's verse 11. He went away and said, Behold, I thought he will surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God and strike his hand over the place and recover the leper. You know, that's religion. <laughs> oh, my. If I could have just gotten in a healing line and had him put his hand on me and had him call upon God and pray, pour a little oil on me, why, that would have been great. That's religion, friend, when God does it. Does it by faith. And he lays your pride in the ground. You don't go to a man. You go to him. And he's the great physician. And so he's to go down there. He said, I thought this would be the thing. And now notice what he says. Are not a banner and far par rivers of Damascus better than all the waters of Israel? May I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in a rage. Now, this is one place where I agree with Naaman. I saw those beautiful rivers up in Lebanon. I went up to the city of Byblos from Beirut, and I stopped up there where they call it the calling cards of the great man of the earth. They left inscriptions there. I walked up that river there quite a ways, probably half a mile. Beautiful water as it comes rippling down over those rocks. Now, let me say this to you. I hear people sing on Jordan's stormy banks, I stand. I hear them talk about roll, Jordan, roll. It's a muddy stream, friend. It's not near as pretty. I rather agree with Naaman. Why in the world should I go down and dip down there? Why not go up there work and get some clean water? But you see... <laughs> A lot of folk hate to come to the cross. It's a place of ignominy, a place of shame, and they don't want to come there. They want to do some great thing, and that's what this man does. Oh, the pride of Naaman. The rivers of Damascus are better, and they were. He said, drive on. The impudence and impertinence of the prophet to tell me to do this. My friend, you'll have to come to the cross of Christ. You don't come to Jesus and stand up as a proud man and say you've got something you are resting on when you come to him 
It's just as I am without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me. Charlotte Elliott was singing one night, lovely voice, opera singer. And there was an unknown preacher there, a young man. After she'd sung, he went over to her, congratulated. Said, you have such a wonderful voice. But he said, that voice is a voice God could use. But he said, you'll have to come to him just like any other sinner. And she was offended. She says, how dare you? I'm not like any other sinner. I want you to know I'm a famous opera singer. (laughs) And so she went home that night. She couldn't forget what that young preacher said. (laughs) And she was restless. She couldn't sleep. And finally, while she got up, out of bed, and she wrote, Just as I am without one plea, that that thy blood was shed for me, O Lamb of God, I come, I come. And my friend, if you come, that's the way you're going to have to come. This is the way it is. And this proud fella, he rides off, you see. So he turned and went away in a rage. That's the last part, verse 12 here of Second Kings 5. Verse 13, And his servants came near and spake unto him and said, My father, if the prophet had bid thee do some great thing, wouldst thou not have done it? How much rather than when he saith to thee, Wash and be clean. Now, if he had told you to do some great thing, you would have attempted it. And how many people today would like to do some great thing for salvation? You don't do a great thing. He did the great thing for us. All we have to do is receive it. We come as beggars. These servants, now they beg him. Then went he down and dipped himself seven times in Jordan, according to the saying of the man of God. And I'd give anything in the world if I could have been there and watched that. I think every time he went down, he'd come up and look at himself. He said, this is absurd. I'm not getting clean. I'm not getting rid of my leprosy. And down he goes again. But he went down seven times, and when he came up, I read now again the last part of verse 14, And his flesh came again like unto the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. And he returned to the man of God, he and all his company. And they came and stood before him, and he said, Behold, now I know that there's no God in all the earth but in Israel. Now, therefore, I pray thee, take a blessing of thy servant. And he said, As the Lord liveth before whom I stand, I'll receive none. And he urged him to take it, but he refused. And Elisha is as difficult to get along with as Elijah is. Naaman said, Shall there not then, I pray thee, be given to thy servant two mules' burden of earth? For thy servant will henceforth offer neither burnt offering nor sacrifice unto other gods but unto the Lord. In this thing the Lord pardon thy servant that when my master goeth into the house of Rimmon to worship there, and he leaneth on my hand, and I bow myself in the house of Rimmon, when I bow down myself in the house of Rimmon, the Lord pardon thy servant in this thing. And he said unto him, Go in peace, so he departed from him a little way. Now, this man Elisha had a servant by the name of Gehazi, and he hated to see that handsome reward slip. And so he took out after Naaman, and he caught up with him. And he said, if you don't mind, 
why, we'll be glad to take your offering. And when he came to the tower, he took them from his hand, bestowed them in the house, and let the men go, and they departed. He went in and stood before his master, and Elisha said unto him, Whence comest thou, Gehazi? And he said, Thy servant went no whither. And he said unto him, Went not mine heart with thee? When the man turned again from his chair to meet thee, is it a time to receive money and to receive garments and olive yards and vineyards and sheep and oxen and men servants and maid servants? The leprosy therefore of Naaman shall cleave unto thee and unto thy seed forever. And he went out from his presence a leper as white as snow. Why grieve? May I say to you another awful sin, a great sin of Naaman was pride, the great sin of Gehazi was greed, awful sin. My beloved, it's leprosy of the soul. Now today, friends, we come to the sixth chapter of Second Kings, and in this we have two of the most exciting experiences that any man ever had. The first one has to do with the floating axe head. And the second has to do with a date with danger and destiny at Dothan. Now, we have a little book that we're sending out to those who support our program. I should say our notes and outlines. You don't have to send anything for those if you would like to have them. But this little book, it has both of these messages, and they'll be more complete than I can possibly give them here today. But I want to lift the high points out of this. We've seen this man, Elisha, is outstanding. He's different from Elijah. After all, Elijah was an extrovert. Elisha's an introvert. Elijah's ministry was public. Look at him on Mount Carmel. And Elisha's ministry was private. The way we saw last time he dealt with Naaman, the captain of the Syrian hosts. This man, Elijah, was spectacular, fire and rain. But this man, Elisha, he's a silent individual. We'll see here at Dothan, and a mountain filled with horses and chariots. Elijah ministered to princes, and this man, Elisha, ministered to common people, as we're going to see right now. And we find that the two men are different in many, many ways. Elijah didn't die. Elisha did. May I say that I think both of them represent the two aspects of the rapture, the living or to be caught up, and those that have died are to be raised from the dead. Now, will you notice that it's not the contrast we're interested in here today, but to see the popularity of this man, Elisha. And I begin reading at chapter 6, verse 1. And the sons of the prophets said to Elisha, Behold now the place where we dwell with thee is too straight for us. Now, this reveals, by the way, the great popularity of Elisha. He taught in a theological seminary, the school of the prophets. The school grew. It needed larger quarters, and it was due to the presence and popularity of Elisha. He was a great teacher, you see. And the strength, actually, and value of any school is the character and the ability of the faculty. It hasn't anything to do with buildings. Today, we put the emphasis on buildings. 
And of course, in Southern California, we build them and then they burn them down. And then they want to tax us some more. But the value is in the teachers. And it's not the methods, but the man. It's not larger buildings, but bigger man. It's not endowments, but endowments of spiritual strength. It's not the stuff, but the staff. It's not money, but the moral condition. Someone said that a college was a law with John Hopkins on one end and a student on the other end. And the schools, I think, in America are not suffering from a housing shortage. They're suffering from a character shortage. And you look at the faculty that gets on TV today in their protest movements, and when I see them, I say, God pity the youth of America today. It's not more pay they need. They need more spiritual power. Now, will you notice verse 2? It says, Let us go, we pray thee, into Jordan, and take thence every man a beam, and let us make a place there where we may dwell. And he answered, Go ye. By the way, this reveals that there was a great deal of timber along the Jordan Valley. That land was timbered in that day. They wanted to go down, cut down the timber, and build a school down there. They'd have a good campus in that particular place, by the way. And this is just a personal touch, I think, now that we're coming to here. And one said, Be content, I pray thee, and go with thy servants. And he answered, I'll go. What a personal touch. Here is a professor that was really popular because he taught the Word of God. Do students ordinarily want to take their teacher with them beyond the boundary of the campus? They say, no, he's either a square or he's queer or he's a brain. And any one of these would disqualify him. But Elisha, they wanted to go with them. What a testimony. And Elisha went with them. So he went with them. And when they came to Jordan, they cut down wood. They got busy, you see. They went to work. Now, here's a student body that wasn't afraid to work, and neither were the professors. That's unusual, I must confess. Now, we have in verse 5, But as one was felling a beam, the axe head fell into the water, and he cried, Alas, master, for it was barred. Now, that seems like a small tragedy, does it not? It's sort of much ado about nothing. It's a tempest in a teapot. And you want to know how ridiculous it is? There stands that little fella, one of the students looking down in the muddy Jordan for the axe that went off the handle. I suppose he could sing on Jordan's stormy banks. I stand and cast a wistful eye looking for my axe. Well, you know, this reveals something. How different this was from this man Elijah. The very interesting thing is that this fellow here would have been passed by Elijah. I think Elijah would have said to him, forget it. That's too little for us to fool with. But, you know, God is concerned about the small events in our lives. We're told to pray about everything. Everything means little things, too. As someone asked the late G. Camel Morgan years ago, do you think we ought to pray about the little things in our lives? And he said, Madam, can you mention anything in your life that's big to God? Well, it's all little stuff to him. But he's interested in what we call little stuff. You see, you remember when the Lord Jesus was here? 
The tramp and tumult of the crowd didn't drown out the cry of blind Bartimaeus. And in the crowd there on another occasion, a frail and feeble woman in the crowd touched, and he said, who touched me? He was interested. And the psalmist says in Psalm 34, 6, this poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all of his troubles. But actually, this is not so small. In this day of gadgets today, it seems very small to us, because you could have gone down to the hardware store or one of the discount stores, and you could have replaced this very easily. But in that day, they didn't have very many axe heads, by the way. And we are told, you remember back in the days of Saul and Jonathan, it is said in 1 Samuel 13, 20, So it came to pass in the day of battle that there was neither sword nor spear found in the hand of any of the people that were with Saul and Jonathan. May I say to you, there was a shortage of weapons there. And you may be sure there are not many axes around. And this fellow, the axe came off here. And he says it's borrowed. Now, most commentators have expelled this young theological student from seminary. He's a dropout. They give him two demerits. They say that this is carelessness. And then they say it was borrowed and he shouldn't have borrowed it. Man, I heard a man gave quite a lecture on the fact he shouldn't have borrowed it. Well, if he were guilty, why didn't Elisha, his teacher, discipline him? And Elisha, I think, absolved him of all the charges that were made against Now, will you notice what happened here? This is a very interesting thing, and I'll move right through this. And the man of God, notice this, said, Where fell it? And he showed him the place, and he cut down a stick, cast it in thither, and the iron did swim. Now, first of all, let me say he was not careless, actually careful. You see, there was a danger of an axe head coming off. It was a dangerous weapon. And there were other students present. God had given a rule that you're to be careful about the use of that. Read Deuteronomy 19.5. This fellow had exercised utmost precaution. He aimed the axe head toward the river. He didn't aim it toward a student. That's the reason when it came off, it went into the river. And traffic officer stopped a lady that ran into another car in downtown Los Angeles and said to her, Lady, you are to drive that, not aim it. Well, this theological student aimed it in the right direction, by the way. And then let's look at that matter. It was borrowed. Well, he's a poor seminary student. He couldn't afford an axe. It was sort of like owning a Cadillac convertible. And I happen to know, having been a theological student, that the old clunk that I own, it barely made it out off the campus and got back in the evening. You see, those of us who handle God's property, not ours, after all, whatever we've got, Paul said, what have you that you didn't receive? And we're stewards of the manifold grace of God. I hear people say, can we borrow something that belongs to the church? Well, after all, This boy here was just a poor preacher, and he probably had a neighbor that lent him to him. Now, I'd like to ask a question. I'd like to know who lent this student an old axe that was a dangerous weapon, head that was apt to come off. 
May I say to you, I think it was a fellow in that day who today is the same fellow who thinks that if he sends his old clothing to the mission and his old Christmas cards to the missionary, he's giving God a very valuable offering. We criticize the church and we criticize missionaries for wanting this thing and that thing. Well, this student was distressed and he borrowed it. And this man shouldn't have given him an old axe. I bet he kept his new axe at home. He couldn't reimburse the man. And he's not a skin diver. And he couldn't dredge the river. So Elisha says, where did it fall? Now somebody says, why did he ask that question? If he's a prophet of God, he should know. I think Elisha knew. And he knew something else, too. He knew the Holy Spirit needed to make a lesson. And you accuse that student of carelessness? Why, my friend, if he'd been careless, he wouldn't have known where it fell. The student could point right to the spot. He showed him the place. He could point right to it. Somebody says, well, we'll explain this miracle away. He saw the axe head in the water. Well, if you say that, you haven't seen the Jordan River. It's muddy. And somebody says he's just lucky. Well, if you say that, you're rather naive, aren't you? This is a miracle. The iron did swim, we're told here. The iron did swim. And that's contrary to all known physical laws. Since the day of John Randolph in 1834, who launched ships of iron and steel, have floated on the seven seas, and it's no miracle. But, my friend, it was a miracle for an axe head on the bottom of the Jordan River to float to the top like a cork. Oh, I grant. It's not startling or sensational. It won't compare to the translation of Elijah when he stepped into a chariot of fire and sailed into space. I submit to you the miracle of the floating axe head is greater than taking off in a chariot. An axe head dormant on the bottom of the muddy Jordan. It's raised, resurrected, restored to the owner, replaced on the handle, made useful, utilitarian, and functional, if you please. My friend, there's a marvelous lesson here. Man is like that axe head. At the fall, we became totally depraved, went down into the waters of death and defeat, lost to God, no longer enjoy life and be useful and purposeful in our existence, far from God. And we try to find something to do. Occupies time down here. And a little man travels. He paints pictures. He flies. He swims. He wars. He drinks. He takes drugs. He tries to drown out the futility of life and fill the vacuum with many things. Nothing satisfies Unrest like a million rats gnawing at his soul. And God cut down a stick. He cast it into the waters of death. That stick is the cross of Christ. And Christ came out of the waters of death, who his own self bare our sins in his own body on the tree, that we being dead to sins might live unto righteousness by whose stripes we are healed." Man can rise from the waters of death and judgment through Christ, placed back in the handle of God's plan and purpose, geared to God's program, and he can say, I can do all things in Christ who strengtheneth me. No longer live an aimless and useless life and a meaningless existence. Now he has a new direction, and he can be brought close to God. 
The greatest miracle, friends, not to go to the moon. The greatest miracle is to be lifted out of the mire of sin and given a meaning to life today. This is a tremendous thing, you see. Now, let me very briefly look at this that has to do with Elisha down at Dothan. Dothan's an interesting place. That's the place where Joseph got into trouble. But here's the place where God delivered Elisha. Now, Ben-Hadad came to the conclusion there must be a spy in his camp. He tried to find out. He discovered it wasn't a spy in his camp. It was Elisha down in Israel that was calling the shots. And so he sent a whole army down to get him. And believe me, friends, that was certainly a compliment to this man that he had to have an old army to come against him. Verse 13, he said, Go and spy where he is, that I may send and fetch him. And it was told him, saying, Behold, he's in Dothan. Therefore sent he thither horses and chariots and a great host. And they came by night and compassed the city about. And when the servant of the man of God was risen early and gone forth, behold, a host compassed the city both with horses and chariots. And his servant said unto him, Alas, my master, how shall we do? This servant of Elisha went out and saw that they were surrounded by the enemy. And he says, What in the world can we do? And this is what Elisha said. He answered, Fear not, for they that be with us are more than they that be with them. You and I are living in a day when Christians are in the minority. We've heard a great deal about minority groups, but the minority group today are believers. I don't mean church members. I mean real Bible believers. We are a real minority. And sometimes we develop an Elijah complex. What we need is an Elisha complex and find out, as Martin Luther put it, one with God is a majority. And so Elisha prayed, here's verse 17, and said, Lord, I pray thee, open his eyes that he may see. And the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw, and behold, a mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire round about Elisha. And he found out that he was protected. Now, let's understand one thing. At Dothan, Joseph had no chariots of fire that protected him. His brothers took him, and he would have been murdered. But they sold him into slavery into Egypt. But regardless of whether there's chariots of fire around you today or whether there's coming into your life trouble, the trouble can never come to you unless it gets through those chariots of fire. God won't let it come to you. You remember in the book of Job, Satan had to say concerning him, you put a hedge around him. My friend, today, God is on your side, but somebody says, I'm in trouble. If you're God's man, he's permitted it. Now, why? I don't know. Don't ask me that. But he's permitted it to come to you for a very definite purpose. Now, we find here that Elisha did a very unusual thing. He asked God to smite the hosts of the Syrians with blindness, and he did. And he led them all the way into Samaria and told them that he was leading them where Elisha was. And when they got to Samaria, he just turned them over to the king of Samaria. Now, the king of Samaria wanted to slay them. Elisha said, don't do that. You feed them. Send them home. 
And may I say, that gesture should have quieted down the Syrians. But I think the Syrians in that day are very much like the Syrians today. They want to fight, and they are apparently not prepared for it. In verse 24, it came to pass after this that Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, gathered all his hosts and went up and besieged Samaria. And there was a great famine at that time, and we're told that an ass's head was sold for fourscore pieces of silver. And you remember the incident, and we'll take that up, of course, next time, that at this particular time, Elisha, verse 32, sat in his house, the elders sat with him, and the king sent a man from before him. But ere the messenger came to him, he said to the eldest, See ye how this son of a murder hath sent to take away mine head. Look, when the messenger cometh, shut the door, hold him fast at the door. Is not the sound of his master's feet behind him? And while he yet talked with him, behold, the messenger came down unto him, and he said, Behold, this evil is of the Lord. What should I wait for the Lord any longer? And so Elisha then delivers a message, and it's one of the strangest messages. And here is another thrilling incident in the life of this man. Do not underrate or undersell Elisha. He's on a par with Elijah, but in just a little different way.